From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy to welcome back, welcome back to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine today, Dr. Karen Plummer. And we're going to be talking today about common eye problems in horses, and we're going to learn a lot today. And I want to welcome you back to the show, Dr. Plummer. I'm glad that uh, you could be here today. Thank you. It's my my great pleasure. Now, we have spoken before about horses, for sure, uh, I believe. And when we think about horses, well, one little bit that I did not know, and this is kind of shameful that I didn't know this because this just seems like the sort of fact I would have been absolutely fascinated by when I was young, uh, and that is that horses have the largest eye of any land mammal. They do. Now, is that just because they're fairly big land uh, mammals? Well, they, they are fair. I mean, they're definitely very big land mammals. But, you know, if you think about them in comparison to, say, a cow yeah. or a buffalo or, or an elephant other, or an elephant. Yes, very much so an elephant. Um, they have a tremendously larger eye. I mean, all of those animals have large eyes, but um, the horses have um, significantly larger compared to their body size. Um, and compared to all the other animals in, in, in both, um, specifically, uh, for their size relative to their size, but also, uh, in, in general, it's a larger eye. What explains that? It's evolution, I presume. Well, it's certainly evolution and they, um, have evolved to have a, a, a very good vision, actually. Their acuity, which is kind of their sense of sharpness, sharp detail, is uh, considerably better than even dogs and cats. Um, they need to be able to look for dangers in their environment. So um, monitoring for predators, they are prey species. Um, they also are athletes. And you know, compared to what we would ask a cow to do or even an elephant to do in terms of being agile and clearing obstacles and moving fast through um, you know, a terrain that, that is challenging and, and has obstacles. Um, they need to have a better vision than a lot, a lot of the other animals that just have to rely on their, their size and, and other defense mechanisms. Now, uh, not to, to take a diversion here, but for a moment, can we just talk about how it is that horses are prey species? Because I can't think of many predators that eat horses, though I, I suspect that if you go back quite a long ways, I, you know, in some places I, maybe, maybe some sort of large cats would, uh, would eat a horse if given the opportunity, but, um, you know, like on any, on any, uh, farm or whatever, there's not too many threats to horses from other animals, are there? Well, not in your general domestic sort of situation, but, you know, any, as you noted, any wild cats could be a threat. Um, and, you know, if, if you were living on the savannas or, you know, in Africa, any other potential large uh, creature like, a, you know, a dog, a wolf, or a wild dog can certainly be um, a threat to uh, a herbivore of any sort. Um, so there, there are animals out there that you know, potentially could be a, a threat to them, and they um, it, it's just not necessarily, we don't necessarily think about that in, in our 
kind of estimation of them as domestic species, but certainly um, the wild horses out on the plains uh, face threats, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah. Okay. Now, I think of you mentioned dogs and cats, but I think of cats in particular as, as having pretty good eyesight, certainly better eyesight than human eyesight, um, you know, especially my eyesight. So horses are even better than that in terms of their acuity? Yeah, in terms of their acuity, it, it seems odd. But, you know, cats, you know, I wouldn't say their their vision is better. It's It's different. So when we think about what we see, we see very well in color. We see a lot of details so that we can read street signs and read the newspaper and read our, our cell phones. Um, but they're adapted to be able to see different things. So they look for motion. Um, they see much better than we do in dim light situations. So it doesn't take a whole lot of light to stimulate the photoreceptors in their retina, where it takes a fair amount for us. When we get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, um, you know, I stumble around in the dark and, and it's rather embarrassing, uh, but the cat doesn't do that. And the horse doesn't do that unless they have some sort of um, retinal degeneration that is, is making it difficult for them. But they can see much, much better in dim light than we can. And if we just look at the counts of the different types of cells in their retina and behavioral um, vision, their visual behavior, um, horses actually can see these cells and, and uh, look over obstacles and differentiate um, different appearances of things actually better than, than cats can. But cats can, they're looking for a particular target, whereas a, a horse has a, it's more of a, a vision generalist, if you will. Okay. And now can, again, a little diversion here since I know we're supposed to be talking about common eye problems, but let's just talk a little bit about the dim light vision. What are some components that would give some some aspects of the eye, maybe physiologically, that might give an animal great low light vision? Is it merely just the ability for the pupil to dilate quite wide? Well, that helps, certainly. Um, being able to take in more light through a larger aperture helps. Um, but also, the different uh, there are different types of photoreceptors, and those are the cells that respond to light uh, in animals' retinas compared to ours. So they have a much higher concentration of what are called rods, um, and those are the, the photoreceptors that are sensitive to small concentrations of light. Um, they also, you know, most of the domestic species that we, we are talking about have an adaptation called a tapetum. You may have heard of it uh, referred to as a tapetum lucidum. And that is a structure that essentially acts like a mirror uh, in the back of the eye that gives that light that enters the eye kind of a second chance. It gets reflected back. If it wasn't able to actually stimulate those photoreceptors the first time it passed through the eye. So it passes through the retina, and if it doesn't stimulate those cells, it hits the structure that acts like a mirror and reflects it back. So it sends that light back through the retina again to give it more opportunity to stimulate those cells. I see. Now, is this the reason why when human eyes get a bright light shining in them, maybe you see red eye, but with some animals, you just see this bright, seemingly glowing eye. Exactly. That is, that is exactly it. So, and it can be different colors. 
So it can be yellow. It can be, you know, a lot of species have kind of a beautiful blue-green color to it. And that, that is exactly what you're seeing. And in animals that don't have a tapeta, like humans, that red reflex, what you're seeing there is actually um, the light ref- contacting the blood vessels in the retina and in a structure called the choroid, which is kind of behind the retina. So you're seeing blood, not, not blood that's not outside a blood vessel, not pathologic blood, but you're seeing the reflection of light hitting those blood vessels as opposed to that shiny reflective structure that is the tapetum. Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody listening right now will kind of share my belief that the eyes are just about the most fascinating thing in our bodies. So let's, if we can, kind of have a little walk through the eye, so to speak, and, and talk about the different structures of it, because this will be relevant to our conversation today. Absolutely. So first thing, the eyes, they're, they're such an elegant structure. Everything is designed so that structure equals function. So when you start out, let's work our way from the outside in, the outermost part of the eye is the cornea. So it's the clear windshield. And that has a couple of functions. It is the outermost barrier that protects the inside of the eye, all the delicate structures like the lens and the retina, from being complicated or impacted or injured by external forces. But it also acts as the first place where light entering the eye gets focused. So it acts like um, a little bit like the gross focus on a microscope. So it takes light and it focuses it onto the structures in the inside of the eye. And the cornea is, particularly for horses, it's a really important structure because if you look at a horse, they have these big, beautiful, prominent eyes that are located on either side of their face, and they kind of lead lead themselves around with them. So their eyes are at great risk for coming into contact with injurious forces or potentially um, pathogens, bacteria or fungus in the environment that can cause damage to them. So that's like the first line of defense. And then if we move our way through the front of the eye to the back, obviously, when you look at the eye, you'll see that colored structure that is in most animals, um, brown, so the iris with the hole in the center, which is the pupillary aperture. In some horses, it's blue, so that you can have a blue-eyed horse or a brown-eyed horse. Now, and the if iris... I, if, can I stop you for just a second to ask, does the color of the iris have any effect on how an animal sees or what it sees? It does not. So the color of the iris is just a function of how much melanin or pigment is in that tissue. So a blue-eyed animal has some pigment, just doesn't have nearly as much as a brown-eyed animal. And, you know, in humans that have, we have kind of a, a more of a spectrum of iris color, uh, a blue iris has less pigment than a green iris, which has less pigment than a brown iris. So the iris itself, is the iris the part that, um, mm-hmm. does it have any, it has, uh, it stops down? Is that what the iris does? Well, the iris, the, the pupil constricts and that controls the amount of light that's entering okay, the pupil does that, that part of the eye. Yep. I got gotcha. you. But the iris is part of a larger structure called the uvea or the uveal tract. And that is essentially the blood vessel supply to the inside of the eye. So it consists of the iris and what's called a ciliary body and a structure called the choroid. And that is 
sort of like the middle layer of the eye tissues. And that is where all of the oxygen and nutrition that feeds the very metabolically active structures in the eye, that's where it, it comes from. That's the blood supply essentially to the eye. So the iris is, has the, the role of controlling light, but it also gives a nutritive function to the inside of the eye. Okay. Um, go ahead. Keep going about the, the different structures because this is great. And then right behind that pupillary aperture, we have the lens. And the lens, when you talk about the lens, the thing that most people think about of the lens when it becomes diseased is that you get a cataract. And a cataract is an opacity of that lens, which is normally very clear. And when it's clear, that allows kind of the fine focus of that microscope. So that's taking the light that has already been focused by the cornea and focuses it even more onto the back of the eye, onto the retina. And then the retina is what takes that light information and sends it, it essentially transforms the light into uh, a chemical and then an electrical signal that goes to the brain. And then the brain says, voila, you are seeing this image that is in front of you. Okay. Now, (laughs) the last thing you said, you said it uh, in a way that there really, I think, does doesn't make it sound as significant as really what's happening because the way that it can turn this from a chemical signal into an electrical signal and then the brain can interpret this as what it is is a, a minor miracle, right? How how does this really how does this really happen? Oh, it's it's very very complicated. So the light that's coming into the eye when it hits the photoreceptors in the retina So that's going to stimulate the cell membranes of those cells. And that will, um, it it essentially changes the neurotransmitters or those chemical information that cells will elaborate to initiate some response in a subsequent cell type. So essentially that's what happens is the light is, that light energy is changing some membranes in these cells that allow it to release a neurotransmitter. And there are several cell types in the retina that take the information from the cell type before it and modify that signal and then pass it along to another cell type, which then modifies that signal. And then once it reaches a cell called the ganglion cell, the um, axons of the ganglion cell in the retina, those actually become the optic nerve. So it takes that information from the eye to the brain. And um, I'll leave it to the neurologists to talk about how how that information is yeah. interpreted. Okay, yeah. that, that's very fair. Earlier, you talked about rods, and I think they have a companion cones. Oh, where yeah. where are those in the eye? Those are in the retina. In the retina. So, yeah, in the back of the eye, in the retina. And and describe exactly. You mentioned that the rods can, you know, help with low light vision. What do the cones do? The cones are for color vision, so they allow us to see, and there are multiple different types of cones, so they respond to different wavelengths of light, allowing us to see different colors and different color um, kind of combinations, if you will. Um, But they're also, the cones are also really helpful in terms of detail vision. So if you talk about a human that has 20-20 vision, um, that detail, that fine focusing that's due to the cone photoreceptors. Most of our animals that don't have quite that degree 
of fine acuity, um, they have fewer cones than rods and fewer cones than we do relative to the number of photoreceptors in the eye. They call them rods and cones. Is that because under magnification, they actually look like rods and cones? They do, actually. So when you look at them structurally, they look like little rods. And then the cone photoreceptors are shaped slightly different, almost sort of cone-shaped. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is totally fascinating. Now, going back to the the iris and, and the, the retina a little bit, this is uh, maybe a silly thing to ask, but and a very naive question, but when we see, or, or, or sorry, the, the pupil, I guess is what, mm-hmm. is what I'm going to ask about in the iris. When the pupil dilates, we see less of the colorful iris, right? Where is that going when the pupil dilates? That, no, that's a totally fair uh, question. It, it actually just kind of bunches up, squishes up into the periphery. Mm-hmm. So there's, um, there are a couple different muscles in the iris. The sphincter muscle that is responsible for contracting it, constricting it, make that, making that pupil smaller. And then dilator muscle, which obviously dilates it. And when it dilates, it's taking all of that. It's essentially a dilator muscle is contracting and pulling all of that iris tissue out into the far periphery. So it just gets bunched up, or wadded up, if you will. And, the and then when the when it's a very bright and sunny day and the pupil kind of stops down to a, the, its smallest aperture, then you can see much more of the iris. Correct. Okay. This is... This has given us a good foundation, Dr. Plummer, for the rest of our conversation when we begin to really talk about problems that can affect horses' vision. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. My guest today is Dr. Karen Plummer. I'm Dana Hill, and we're going to be back with more of the program right after this. Stay tuned. Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Karen Plummer, and we're talking about eye problems in horses. Now, one of the things that you alluded to in the last segment, Dr. Plummer, was the position of the eyes on a horse's head. And I feel that this must be a kind of significant evolutionary uh, decision, right? Or, or, or just a kind of uh, an aspect of the horse that has come down over however many millennia that horses have existed. And the position of the eyes must have something to do with the animal's status as a prey species. Am I, am I on the right track? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yep. Um, a horse as a prey species, you know, if you think about it, Horses are herbivores, so they eat, they eat veggies, they eat grass, um, and carnivores eat herbivores. There are very very few animals that actually eat meat eaters because we don't taste as good as as grass eaters do. Mm-hmm. Um, but horses have um, kind of very laterally positioned eyes, so on either side of their head, which gives them a much wider field of view, so they can see almost all the way to their tails. So they have a very large monocular field of view. And animals and people that have kind of forwardly placed eyes, that means that their perception of things um, has a greater degree of 
binocularity, which essentially means depth perception or stereopsis. So if we're trying to focus in on something, on an object of interest or on a prey species, having very forwardly placed um, eyes with a high degree of depth perception is going to let us see what we need to see. Whereas a horse needs to avoid predators like us. So they have a smaller degree of binocular vision and a much larger field of view that allows them to see almost all the way around their bodies, except for a, a small um, slice behind their heads and behind their tail, which is really only about three degrees. So do they have any area that is a, if in front of them in which their field of vision comes from both eyes together and they may therefore have a degree of stereoscopic vision in any location? They do. Yeah, they do have a smaller percent, percentage. So it's about 60 degrees. So they, they don't see as, as large an area of binocular vision as we do. They do have some. Um, it's just not, not quite as extensive as it is for um, a carnivore. Well, the reason I ask is because horses are sometimes called upon to do amazing feats like, I don't know, jumping over a gate or something like that. And in order to do that, you'd think that a horse would need to have pretty good depth perception, unless it's the human being who kind of like tells the horse exactly when to leap. And I'll confess, I don't know a lot about uh, horses that do athletic activity. Yeah, there are, you know, certainly depth perception helps them tremendously. So an animal that is not sighted in one eye but can see out of the other certainly is going to have challenges with that. And and a lot of times those animals are not the the greatest performers in terms of um, jumping over, you know, six foot fences and those sorts of things. But their, their stereopsis isn't the only thing that they rely on to kind of perceive where things are in space. So there are a lot of other cues that they can use. Um, position of things, relative size of things, shadows, uh, and certainly a performance animal that has someone on their back, um, especially if they have a you know a trusting relationship and have worked together for a really long time um, and trust each other, they can rely on cues from the rider to say, okay, now it's time to you know pick up your feet and, and jump over this fence. So there are a lot of very talented performance horses that are challenged with vision in in one eye, uh, but can still go on to do pretty amazing things. It just depends on the individual and their capacities and their level of trust and their level of athletic ability and um, the relationship that they have with their their handler and their riders. Now, earlier you mentioned that one consequence of a horse's eye position kind of on either side of its head is perhaps the potential for experiencing trauma to the eye. Uh, is are, are eye injuries a common reason that veterinarians are called to to look at an animal? Yeah, eye, eye injuries are very common. And, and the most common eye injury that they sustain is what's called a corneal ulcer. Um, sometimes you'll hear people call it ulcerative keratitis. And what that is essentially is a wound or a scratch on that outer windshield, that clear front barrier to the eye. Uh, and that happens because of position, because their eyes are kind of out front, um, but also because as a prey species, they are prone to you know quick jerky movements if they're 
um, startled or scared, and that, that can lead to traumatic insults. Are these often serious, that, serious enough that they could lead to permanent effects or vision loss? Yes, absolutely. You know, if they had a, a penetrating wound or got a foreign body or something through the cornea into the inside of the eye, that could introduce infection. It could cause damage to the interior of the eye. Uh, even if it's a, you know, a non-penetrating sort of more superficial scratch or laceration, um, that is potentially at risk for becoming infected. You know, horses live outside. They have all sorts of opportunistic bacteria and fungus that can take up housekeeping in a, in a wound that's nice and moist and a happy place to be for a, a pathogen. So corneal ulcers and corneal wounds and any sort of trauma to the eye is an emergency because if it's not treated, it could potentially lead to something that was not only sight-threatening, but potentially even eye-threatening. Now, horses that have caretakers or trainers or what have you, probably if they get an eye injury, it gets noticed reasonably quickly, correct? You'd be surprised. Um, Yes, in most instances, if it's something significant, um, the horse is going to be squinty. So it'll close its eyes, it will peer uh, it will act uncomfortable. It will want you to avoid that side of its head. Um, so in, in many instances, if there's an acute severe problem, then it will be noticeable as long as someone's paying attention. But there are some instances where you can have disease that's sort of low grade or the animals had kind of time to acclimate to things. And if you know people aren't necessarily as attentive as they could be, there are some ocular problems in horses that can get missed that could lead to problems later on. Now, this is maybe a silly question, but I think of some animals like cats, for instance, that will try to hide an injury from people or other Mm -hmm. animals. Is this anything that a horse would do? Sure, absolutely. Um, They are particularly good at, you know, masking things if there's in a situation where they don't want to be seen as uh, weak. Um, but eye pain, there's really nothing like eye pain. Um, eye pain is really significant when it occurs. And if there is an ulcer, um, there's really nothing like it. So that's really kind of hard to completely mask. Um, they might not be as overtly uncomfortable as they could be, or, you know, and some animals are, are like some people a little bit more sensitive to stimuli than others. Uh, But there are always some subtle signs that you can see when you're looking at a horse that could indicate some discomfort. Um, One of the more subtle signs that we look for is the position of the eyelashes. So even if a horse doesn't have its eye slammed shut and is watering or tearing profusely, but perhaps maybe it's partially open, but the eyelashes are tipped down kind of vertically as opposed to kind of out on the horizontal. That can be a subtle sign of discomfort. I, I get your point about, you know, eye problems being especially vexing, if only because when we think about a, a lot of injuries um, or, you know, other kinds of of pain. Let's say your uh, your leg hurts. Well, what you might do is, I don't know, sit down and kind of 
get off your leg, and that might provide you some relief. But the eye, considering how much we use it, and presumably horses as well, it pain in the eye just cannot be ignored. It is, it's, you're not going to be able to distract yourself from it. Right. And, but there, there are a couple of different types of, of eye pain that you can have, um, though. So it, it's not as cut and dry as that. Most corneal problems, if it's an ulcer or a scratch or a wound, those are pretty painful and they're going to show you that they're uncomfortable. But there are some sorts of kind of more dull, achy pain that they won't necessarily act in the same way, like holding their eyes shut, um, squinting, tearing, those sorts of things. So it, it really relies on the relationship between the handler and the trainer and the horse and knowing what's normal for that individual, and then also looking for other signs that could indicate discomfort, like cloudiness. So instead of being a nice, shiny, clear eye that's bright, uh, you might see a, a blue appearance to it. You might start to see some blood vessels in the cornea that shouldn't be there. The inside of the eye might look a little bit cloudy. The, the white parts, the sclera, might look a little bit red. So it relies on you know, looking for other changes in the appearance of the eye to, as an indication that there's a problem. Yeah, okay. Now, I... I think that with uh, a corneal ulcer, which would be something um, that could be quite painful for the horse, treatment is probably something that would be almost indispensable in, in this case because it, should it not get treated, um, the, uh, the not only the discomfort that the horse would feel, but maybe the potential for it to um, morph into something more serious uh, is present. Well, what would the treatment options be for a horse with some sort of corneal ulcer? Generally, um, we use kind of a multimodal approach to treating corneal ulcers in horses. They generally will go on some form of an antibiotic topically um, to either treat an infection if it's present, but also to prevent an infection, because that's the worst thing that could happen is if you had some small traumatically induced wounds that then gets a secondary infection. Um, so antibiotics, in some instances, using antifungals. Uh, horses are, as a species, very predisposed to having fungal infections develop in their corneal wounds, which are, are very, very serious. Um, we will also use, um, generally, there is some inflammation inside the eye secondary to that corneal ulcer. So we'll use medications like atropine and um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory um, medications like um, banamine or flunixin or, or bute and those sorts of drugs systemically to help control that inflammation, which is part of the, the pain response that the animals are going to be experiencing. So antimicrobials, some anti-inflammatory medications, um, and also oftentimes we'll use things like um, autologous serum, which is the horse's own blood that's been spun down. It has some factors in it that inactivate any enzymes that might be present in the cornea to, that might make things worse, that might kind of dissolve or chew up the collagen that makes up the cornea. 
Uh, where do, where do these fungal infections come from? Oh, that's, I mean, there are all of these organisms that potentially act as pathogens are in the environment. So fungus is ubiquitous. I have spoken with veterinarians and clients all over the world in Iceland and Finland and South America and Africa and Asia. It doesn't, you know, we are a hot spot in, here in, in North Florida for fungal infections just because we have so much heat and so much moisture. Um, it's a great kind of media for things to grow, but fungus is everywhere. And it's just a, often it's function of bad luck. If it's in the environment and you have a wound and the fungus just kind of takes up residence because it has the opportunity to do so. Are these a variety of different fungi that can uh, create problems for the horse? There are. There's a lot of different species that can do it. Um, we see um, aspergillus species and fusarium species uh, as the most common, you know, complicating pathogens that can infect the horse cornea, but also things like candida, which is a form of a yeast. Um, so there are a lot of different species that can that can cause problems in the horse cornea. Yeah, that the also same is true for people. Actually, people can get a fungal keratitis, which is is pretty potentially devastating as well. Now that gosh, that sounds terrible. But is, is the treatment for that, um, you know, is it expensive? Well, the antifungal medications that are available, a lot of them are are unfortunately quite expensive, and and treatment generally for a fungal infection in the cornea is going to last for a minimum of four weeks, sometimes considerably longer than that. So, so that over time, the longer you need to be on those antifungal medications, the the more expensive it can be. Yeah. So yes, in, indeed. And unfortunately, a lot of those cases, um, we end up needing to recommend surgery, which of, of course increases the cost of the treatment uh, for those individuals because we're having to go in and actually either replace their corneas with a donor or remove and kind of debulk uh, a, a large portion of the infection so that it doesn't make things worse. Yeah. I mean, anybody who thinks for a minute about what it must be like to perform a surgery on a horse will will surmise soon that it is a vast undertaking uh, involving many people, right? And it's not something anybody probably looks forward to. And yet, in many of these cases, the alternative is what? I mean, blindness in, in that mm -hmm. eye, loss of that eye. But even then, there's probably a surgery going to be required at some point. Right. It, you know, if it were a, a situation where the eye is, is blind for whatever factor that happens, you know, we don't necessarily need to remove that eye as long as it's comfortable. You know, comfort has to be the guiding factor in, in at that point. But if it's an eye that is painful and blind or has ruptured and, um, you know, is persistently um, not healing appropriately or even acting as a potential conduit for infection to other parts of the body, then we would need to remove that eye for the animal's well-being and, and for their comfort. Yeah. So you would need to, of course, have general anesthesia in order to operate on a horse's eye. Um, and then 
you would need to to have that horse kind of on some sort of table or, or something like that, which is itself pretty pretty cumbersome. This is probably not the kind of surgery you can do out on a farm. Well, it, it, you know, if, if it's a, the removal of an eye, in many instances, we can do those in an animal that is standing and heavily sedated with lots and lots of local blocks. So there are some surgeries that can be performed, even some corneal surgeons, uh, surgeries, you know, certainly by someone that was experienced with those procedures. Some of those can be performed on a standing animal, but it, it's not something that we routinely recommend. That would be something that we would recommend if we had an animal that was, you know, maybe orthopedically compromised and couldn't be um, laid down or was, you know, um, 700 kilogram draft horse that um, the risks of general anesthesia were would be greater than the benefits that you get from general anesthesia and that and that corneal surgery. So um, we can get creative in some instances, uh, but if you're doing a corneal surgery, you're going to get the best outcome and the best success rate. Obviously, if if the animal's immobilized for the surgery, so that we can do it. With microscopes and magnification and, and those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, right. I mean, any surgery requires steady hands uh, and and uh, on a, a living thing that is immobile. But in particular, surgery on the eye seems like there's no margin for error. Very little, for sure, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, this is where we're going to take our second break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Karen Plummer, and we'll be back with more right after this. Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Karen Plummer. And we're talking today about common eye problems in horses. And we've talked a bit about trauma. And I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit about some of the other kinds of problems. Maybe, um, I mean, foreign bodies, I don't know if that, that gets maybe categorized under trauma. They certainly can cause irritation. Yep, for sure. So that that would be kind of a micro trauma, unless we, we, it was a you know dramatic foreign body, and I have certainly seen some of those. Um, but yeah, foreign bodies are very common, particularly um, certain times of year. You know, particularly here, we see a lot of little seed pods, um, little bits off acorns, and little um, grass seed things that can get stuck on the cornea. Um, those can cause usually some minor irritation, they can result in an ulcer. Um, sometimes they'll they'll sit there and get stuck on the cornea and can be there for, for quite a while before anyone recognizes that there's a problem if it's a, a tiny little foreign body. Um, I've seen them sitting there for a long time, long enough to actually have blood vessels grow into the cornea before someone recognizes that there's a problem. But if it's a, 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 a more significant foreign body where there was some penetrating insult. Um, usually, those animals are much more painful, and uh, will will let their their handlers and, and owners know that there's a problem. What about 
insects, do they ever cause problems with horses' eyes? Yeah, they can, actually. Um, it, it's, it's good that you brought that up because there is a phenomenon. Um, people colloquially term it summer source. Um, and this is uh, caused by uh, a fly, essentially, that, that lays its larvae in the medial campus, which is like the inside corner of the eye. Uh, and there is a, an organism called habronema that can form these little granulomas and ulcerations in the eyelids uh, and in the conjunctiva. So um, flies and parasites certainly can cause some damage to the eye. And usually they're pseudo long-standing and chronic, but often you'll appreciate tearing and irritation, not overt slam shut, but um, there'll be more tearing, more irritation, more redness. And sometimes you'll see little lumps that occur on the, the inside cornea or inside corner of the, the eyelids that are the result of, of uh, bugs. That are, they're not helpful. No, no, not at all. And, and while I can't think of many things that one could do to kind of mitigate, uh, you know, the animal's exposure aside from, you know, just having it at a totally different environment, are, are there any effective treatments to help these animals that have been irritated? Yeah, generally, um, we treat these animals, you know, symptomatically for their discomfort, but also they end up getting um, dewormed. So that is is especially helpful for these sorts of of parasites that can um, kind of take up housekeeping in and around the eye. Yeah. Um, Husbandry issues are are helpful, too. So we see it more often in situations where um, perhaps there's, not uh, a mechanism to remove the manure to take it farther away, uh, or if there's you know a lot more flies which act as a vector um, for these parasites. So trying to keep their environment as clean and, and free of uh, kind of situations that set up for for fly keeping um, can be helpful. That makes a lot of sense. What about cancers? Are are they? ever a problem for horses and particularly their eyes? They are, actually. Um, there's a, a tumor called a squamous cell carcinoma, which is the most common ocular and periocular tumor in horses. So it can occur um, on the third eyelid. It can occur on the conjunctiva. It can occur in the lids. And it can actually occur on the eyeball itself. And um, there are a lot of different treatment options for this. Uh, Often it requires surgery or using chemotherapeutic agents, Uh, but the best thing to do about tumors in and around the eye is have it addressed really early. So squamous cell doesn't necessarily present like a mass or a lump. It often occurs more as a little ulcerative wound. So it looks like an ulcer or a, a kind of raised or irritated pink spot on the eyelids or on the eyeball. So if you see, if you are a horse owner or handler and you see a wound that's been sitting there for, you know, a little bit of time and you wouldn't expect it to still be there after that period of time, or if you see a small pink area starting to grow that wasn't there previously, have that addressed sooner rather than later. Um, Because those are much easier to deal with when, when they're smaller. Now, you say that this might happen on the horse's eyeball. Do you mean the sclera somewhere in the white part of the eye? 
Uh, it can occur on the sclera. It actually occurs more commonly on the cornea so uh-huh. or at the, the junction, what we call the limbus, which is the, kind of the border between the clear cornea and the white sclera. So often they'll originate there and then actually grow all the way across the clear part of the cornea. The sclera itself is actually, probably when you think about it, uh, a pretty substantial area relative to the size of the eye, and much Mm -hmm. of it is kind of inside the skull. Uh, Are there issues that affect that that can cause trouble? Fortunately, uh, scleral diseases are not common in the horse. So uh, unless there's some sort of trauma that can cause it to rupture uh, or some sort of congenital developmental defect, um, fortunately, the sclera is generally pretty well protected. So unless there's uh, an an external insult to it or uh, a disease like glaucoma, which is high pressure on the inside of the eye, that can cause the sclera to stretch. But fortunately, as a general rule, it's not terribly commonly affected when there's other eye disease. We have just a little bit of time left. And in the little bit of time left, what sort of signs or symptoms should people be looking for that might indicate a horse is having problems with its eyes? Well, first and foremost, making sure that everything is shiny and bright and uh, that their eyes are equally being held open, that the eyelashes are kind of pointed out on the horizontal, and that the clear windshield is nice and clear and sparkly. If they start to see squinting, tearing, reluctance to hold the eye open, if the front uh, part of the eye looks cloudy, if the pupil looks small or a different shape, than uh, it should be or than what the other eye looks like, those are all signs that something's happening. So really you're looking for evidence of discomfort and pain, squinting, tearing, or changes in the appearance and the clarity, changes in the color of any different part of the eye. Those are a sign that something's happening and, and that that animal needs an eye exam. Well, Dr. Plummer, thank you so much for being back on the program today. I learned a lot and I think our listeners did too. Thank you. I appreciate it, Dana. Dr. Karen Plummer is from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. I want to thank Sarah Carey at the College of Veterinary Medicine for her help with the program. And thank you all for listening. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Animal Airways Live. Bye-bye.